Tonight on Arena, we review Piaf at the Gate with Camilo Sullivan in the title role and the enduring appeal of Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. From Johnny Cash to Loretta Lynn, from Elvis to Tina Turner, the rags to riches, rock bottom to redemption, tragic lives of musicians have always made good stories. So it's no surprise so many of them have been turned into screen or stage productions. Certainly the case with Piaf, the story of the French chanteuse Edith Piaf, uh, which is currently playing at the Gate Theatre in Dublin, it was written. This version by Pam Gems and first staged by the Royal Shakespeare Company in 1978. And this new production, which is billed by The Gate as the Irish premiere, uh, stars, as I said, Camilo Sullivan in the lead role and it's directed by Des Kennedy. Helen Meany has been to see it and she's with us in studio this evening. Of all the lives that you might choose to tell a story of, uh, uh, Helen, I think it's safe to say that the life and whatever woes of Edith Piaf certainly make for a good story, don't they? Oh, they really do. Yeah, it's it's the stuff of of legend in in sort of musical success uh, from the twentieth century. She she was born in into extreme uh, poverty in nineteen fifteen during the First World War, and and the legend is that she actually was born in a doorway, given birth mm. to, and, and that's you know contested. But either way, she was abandoned by her parents, was brought up by her grandparents for a period, whose business was to run a brothel, um, and then she was singing on the streets for. Uh, and and obviously there was an awareness that there must have been some mm. that she could sing and this was her means of survival um, but it, it, extraordinarily difficult she had, a, she had a child she gave birth herself at the age of 17 and that child died two years later so every kind of harshness and, um, and I suppose th- that shaped her um, and we see her in this production played at the young Piaf uh, by Zara Devlin and she's really mm. tough and rough edged you know? Yeah just to, in, in terms of how Pam gems because this is a, it, it's extraordinary that this is the Irish premiere of a play that was done by the Royal Shakespeare Company back in, in, in the late 1970s. In terms of how Pam Gems tells the story, is it a linear story from the young PF through to the... Uh, it's still very young, let's face it. She died in her mid-40s, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, late 40s. Yeah, extraordinarily uh, young. You know, so it, it, do we get a linear representation of her life or are we flashing back and forth? How does that work? It's... It's pretty linear, actually. I mean, this we open with her in the, at the height of her career, or just at the beginning of her decline, mm. for if just for the, a very a one opening scene. But then we immediately go back to the the young the young Piaf on Paris streets, and then the music. There are twenty four songs in this production, so the music takes us through. It's a vehicle for. The, you know all of the mm. music some of the really well known Piaf songs some of them not so well known but it follows through in it roughly chronologically and is quite sketchy actually as it goes on and in the second half we really see her in her decline in her drug addiction her alcohol addiction her you know she has five car mm. crashes five and her face is badly smashed up the man the one man that she's that she thought she truly loved is killed in an air crash uh, and coming to see her so I mean all sorts of terrible things happened to her and, and then she's battling illness and so we see a lot of that Sean a lot of a lot of her collapsing in uh, you know as yeah. at the start of performance a lot of her behaving appallingly to the people around her and it that becomes um, quite cliched and also a little bit repetitive in terms of the writing in in the ter- t- I'm talking about the writing yeah. now I, I actually think that that this this was written in 1978 and I think it's in that mode where you know women successful women artists whether they were Judy Garland or I don't know Billie Holiday or the, you always had the you know the biographical the, the documentaries mm. and biopics they focused on the damage and the wreck and the yeah. ruin of the life the terrible personal life the you know failed relationships the whatever and and I think that this the writing of this is in that mode and I don't think if a, a playwright were to approach it now this is utterly hypothetical yeah. of course I don't think that would be the, the focus. focus I think there's a way of telling her story that is more balanced and has more context and, and just to stick up for a moment with the how the songs are used within it you say there are 27 uh, 24 oh, sorry beg your pardon yeah. 20, 24 songs so are the songs treated in terms of they tell a story that fits into her life story or are they just use it 
then this was her next hit, then this was her next hit. No, Isn't that they, the way it's not quite as, it's not really a jukebox <clears throat> yeah. like that, but it, but it, but some of them are, are moved around chronologically within, you know, the way they actually w- were sung by her. But they loosely are aligned with the, mm. the, the arc, which is of decline, basically. Yeah. But they're sung by the whole ensemble and the ensemble are, are wonderful. There's a cast of 10. And so it's not just Piaf on her own. She's often, you know, with, in, with the full company. Mm. And some of those, some of the music is, is absolutely fantastic. So for, for Piaf lovers, it's a chance to see, well, certainly uh, music that, that is not, it's not, every, it's not all only the well-known ones. Yeah. I mean, we do get La Vie en Rose and Je ne regrette rien, but we get lots of others. Um, and so it, it takes its time, you know. Yeah. But if you're enjoying the music, that's your, you'll be really happy with that, you know. I, you were saying that we do see her at the height of her powers at the very beginning. What does what she sing? Where, well, she's it? actually, she's, she's, what I meant was she, her career is at, is, 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 at, yes, at its but, but in fact, we see her beginning to falter on stage and she's, she's taken away. Uh, and then we come back, we, we rotate back to that scene later on. And then, we, and then from then on, she gets even worse. So she's, she's injecting herself with morphine. That's what's that's what's happening. So she's yeah. collapsing um, backstage. Um, uh, and it's, right. it's terribly sad story. Yeah, I mean, I it mean is, really, it is, really is. It is yeah. such a tragic. It is such a tragic life. But it is interesting, as you say, that how how we, to present that life in a way that isn't just oh the tortured artist and the tortured female artist in particular. Maybe the, there's an, an element of the 1970s still within within the writing. But let's get to the the performance. I suppose. The central performance here is Camilo Sullivan as Edith Piaf, who kind of made to play that role in many ways in terms of her acting, in terms of her own background, um, in, uh, if, because she has French parentage yes, in there she, as well. Yes, she, does, she uh, does. And and many of the songs are bilingual. They are. The, actually, I would say the majority are in French, but with some English, and mm. then there are some in English as well. And and, and she performs the, the French. In fact, the whole cast performed the French songs mm. beautifully. So I think, you know, either they had fantastic vocal, like, uh, you know, dialect coaching and so on, or else they're just very good at French. <laughs> um, and of course, uh, so Camille commands that really, really well. And but is it, 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 we see everything through the eyes of PF as played by Camille O'Sullivan? Um, there are very few strongly rounded other characters mm. other than uh, Marlena Dietrich who's played by Aoife Mulholland and she gets actually gets a solo <laughs> she mm. gets to sing Falling in Love Again and, oh, and right. she and she gets her own moment with the, with the full audience absolutely wrapped and, and she, it's a wonderful performance and the scenes between uh, Piaf and and Dietrich are, are have the best lines and what what's the dynamic between the, the two they are quite kind of wryly uh, competitive, but o- but also supportive, right. and and actually, there's a, the the way that the the production handles La Vie en Rose is to have them singing at the end Together. of at the end of the war and when they're reunited, and that's actually poignant. And on the opening night, Camille Sullivan was moved, very visibly moved mm. by that, and it was beautifully sung by the two of them. That was a gorgeous duet. So so that's so Marlene Dietrich is one character we get to see a lot of. The other one is Twan, uh, her her the young the young woman she was on the street with who basically was a prostitute and mm. who stays sticks, who with, sticks with Kate Gilmore mm. uh, she she sticks with her through thick and thin basically um, and she get even visits her when she's dying so that's the other character that we get to know otherwise it's an ensemble of um, swapping roles everybody mm. doubling up multiple parts and throughout playing kind of everybody from a waiter to you know somebody in the resistance etc so, and, and, and so the center performance by uh, Camilo Sullivan is there. You mentioned the young Edith Piaf. Uh, how, how does that, does it kind of switch over at a certain point? Do we hear any songs from the young Yes, Piaf? we do. And Zara Devlin sings beautifully. And, and she's so slight. So she's, she really looks like a, a child, an urchin. Mm. Uh, and, but then she starts to sing and her voice is really rounded and rich and surprising. Actually, because it sort of it just kind of rings out from this tiny frame, yeah. and so she's singing. And the way the overlap is done is that Camille Sullivan comes in as the older, fully fledged uh, artist Piaf, and is watching her younger self. So there's some nice ah, doubling right. like that. Yeah, because I mean, the childhood was. You, you gave us a sense of it earlier on. The childhood Utterly was grim. pretty yeah. horrendous. Yeah. Um, so the idea is that the older. 
Piaf is the mother is, kind of is, is, basically is, said off. You yeah, go. she I'm not was abandoned. After you. She was abandoned. Yeah. So the you know the older Piaf is looking back at that from time to time by by appearing. So we see characters reappearing and appearing um, in some of the mm. ensemble scenes, just as a reminder of of the past. And I see you you're actually making <laughs> circles with your finger there, and there is there is a revolving stage which I get, suppose gives that sense of moving around and back and forward in time. Yes, it does, and and also just as a basic scene changer because there's very minimal set. It's so Sabine Dorjon designed it and the Revolve works really, really well um, because we can just switch from a New York bar to a hotel room to, yeah. to being backstage or in front of the proscenium arch curtain which is a big red plush curtain. Which So so the Revolve is actually very important and also creates a bit of sense of dynamism when in fact yeah. th- things slow down a bit. It's because do we shift then from Paris to different cities we around do, the world? She spent she went, time in America. She yeah. went after the war, this is when she was at the height of her fame, mm. after the Second World War, she was invited to uh, the States and she played in Carnegie Hall. And so that, that was really her, her great moment. Um, and then and then, thing, then she had a comeback with Je ne regrette rien in 1960. Yeah. And she was dead by 1963. I know, that's, that's the tragedy of it in, in many ways, isn't it? What about the, the male characters in the midst of all of this? Are they, are, is there any good to be found? Because, again, the treatment... Uh, of PF by many of the male uh, characters is not good. It's not good, but it's not a black and white picture of them. The fact is that they're very underdeveloped as characters. Mm. Uh, so Rory Nolan plays her first manager, Louis Le Play, who's murdered, by the way. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> things... Things got she had she really had a tough time, so she was actually at one point suspected of being in, involved in the murder, but uh, but she also interestingly champions the career of young male singers such as Charles Aznavour and Yves Montand, and she she insists on on her managers taking note mm. of these these young artists, so she can be both very kind um, and and also really cruel. But again, these are sketches, Sean. Yeah, so you're only not, getting a little yeah, flavour of it. What, the, who cameos. is the character at the very end? Then towards the end of her life, there's a, 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 a literally a, a, a guy that she becomes involved with and can, yes. can, gets very close to very well, she, quickly. She marries, yeah. in fact. So he's a devoted fan called Theo Scarpo, and he's played by Emmanuel Okoye. And that's a very tender, poignant ending, mm. actually. So there's a long kind of you know bed, deathbed sequence where where they sing together very beautifully, and he's you know he's taking care of her and brushing her hair, and 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 she dies a few months after they get married. Yeah, and the the musical director here is Fergal Murray. What kind of instrumentation do we have on stage? Do we have instruments present, or is it recorded? Music? Recorded, and but and you know of course Fergal Murray has been collaborating mm. yeah, with Camille Sullivan, Sullivan for, for a long, long, long time. time. So yeah. obviously they're very comfortable together. Um, there's also uh, a movement director. So there's it, the whole thing is really fluid and. You know, and well choreographed as an ensemble, mm. so that it, the music gels at times in the second half. I think the sound is slightly; it, it all becomes a little bit shouty, but at, then it closes down beautifully with "Je ne regrette rien" um, as a, the actual final number. And yeah. I think this is where Camille Sullivan really interprets it in her own way. So she gives it a very yeah. different inflection, which I think is, Does, is poignant. You know, I know you've you've expressed reservations about the writing and perhaps that there's a dated quality to that. Does the production and do the performances? Does it work as an evening? Oh yes, very much. I mean, particularly uh, for lovers of this of of this period and lovers of Piaf, of whom there are many, and it's you know very, very much so. All right. Well, we're going to finish up with there is only one you can finish up with at the end of a PF review, isn't there? But PF runs at the Gate Theatre until Saturday, the 20th of January. So right through the Christmas period. And I guess the musical element of that is is, is what they had in mind when they were programming it. GateTheatre.ie. We'll finish by listening to a version of Je ne regrette you and Camilo Sullivan, accompanied by Fergal Murray. And this was performed live on Sunday with Miriam here on RT Radio 1 on Sunday last the 4th of December and what a beautiful version of the PF song it is No rien rien No Je ne regrette rien Yeah, 
Yes, Camilo Sullivan there with No Jean-Regret Riam, uh, the song of Edith Pia, of course, and one of the songs that is part of the Gate Theatre production, which runs, as I said, through until the 28th of January 2023. GateTheatre.ie for full details. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if any men alive possessed that knowledge. May that be truly said of us and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. The final line, of course, from Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, which was first published in London in 1843. It tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, an elderly miser who is visited by the ghost of his former business partner, Jacob Marley, and the spirits of Christmas past, present and yet to come. After their visits, Scrooge is transformed into a kinder man. The first edition sold out by Christmas Eve and it has never been out of print. The story has been adapted many times for film, stage, opera and TV and I'm joined in studio this evening by Jareth Colleen and Ruth Barton to take us through the origins of the book itself and to talk about its many adaptations. Um, First of all, Jareth, maybe to give the the context of why and how uh, Dickens... (laughs) Dickens... uh, uh, published this piece in the first place and given the topic of the whole thing it's a, it's a kind of ironic that money was the driving force money was the driving force so he was having a, a bit of a, a lull in success terms so his his the novel that he was uh, writing Martin Chuzzle was selling around 20,000 copies per month and that was half as good as say the Pickwick Papers or Nicholas Nickleby so he was Worried about his success. Yeah, and, and when you say he was earning that amount of money for him, or that amount of copies per month, it was it was being get being sent out in installments, which is yes, what he did install, with all the yes, novels. It's, it's one one a month, and that's that's how he he wrote. Yeah. Mo- practically everything he he wrote was in installment fiction. So he was worried about that. It, worried that it was impacting on his celebrity. He, he wanted to be the most successful author at the time, and he was also had a growing family. I think. He had a, a three or four children at this stage, um, so he needed the money. And so, and also Christmas, he, he cottoned on fairly quickly um, that Christmas was becoming a big deal in the mid-19th century. So. Yeah, just what was the status of, of Christmas? It, we had The Christmas tree ha- was just about part of the celebrations the at this point in time? Was, uh, the Christmas oh, tree was had been brought over, yeah. and, but you had to wait a few years after this. So this is 1843, 1848, there's this picture of the Queen, Queen Victoria and her new husband w- with their family with a Christmas tree that appears in, in uh, the newspaper. So and this is post-Christmas post Carol. Post-Christmas Carol, but the same time as the Christmas Carol is produced, you get the first Christmas card, you get the beginnings of a reinterest in what, how can we celebrate Christmas now? Because we've had a period at the beginning of the 19th century of mass migration from the countryside to the city to towns, to to, in, to, to, mm. to sort of staff industries. And people can't celebrate Christmas exactly the same as they used to celebrate it in, in, in the countryside because you can't carry those rural traditions. So in fact, there was a kind of a crisis of Christmas, historians tell us, that people didn't really know what to do. How was Christmas going to be celebrated now? And the 1840s is really this bridge period where they, the, the, the Victorians kind of what, what they call mm. refurbish Christmas and begin a whole series of new traditions. And Dickens is cottoning on. Something has to be done to explain to people how can you celebrate Christmas in the cities and towns rather than the countryside. So to what extent would you say that Charles Dickens was kind of part of this kind of describing potential yes. new ways of doing it? Or was he, in fact, kind of just cottoning on to, well, there's a bit of money to be made out of that. There's, there's something that everybody's interested in now. I'll write about that. No, no, what he does is he provides a kind of blueprint. So here you go. This Absolutely. is how you can celebrate it. If you think about, think about the way we celebrate it now. Think about the centrality of the Cratchit family Christmas to mm. our own Christmases. What we think of as the ideal Christmas is actually the Cratchit family Christmas. And so Dickens has provided, there's the blueprint. The Christmas, turkey, was the turkey, yes. for example, was that a, a Dickens well, invention? It, uh, it's not. The, the turkey was part of the old traditions, but it wasn't, it wasn't the major it wasn't the major bird. Because the poor old Cratchits were eating They goose, had a goose. They which is goose. much more expensive <laughs> nowadays than turkey, ironically. But, you, but of course, Scrooge sends them a turkey, an enormous turkey yeah, yeah. In, the, in, the, in the final stave. Um, so he, but prior to that, Christmas, prior to the 19th century, Christmas had been a, a much more communal, community-based, mm. much more outdoorsy kind of event where the entire village would gather 
usually at the at the at the, the the village square or in the land of the big house. Yeah. And the landlord or the the local lord would provide for a kind of a huge Christmas feast. But in Dick with Dickens, what Dickens does is he domesticates Christmas. You you set up a Christmas in your own house with your own family with your nuclear family. And it's a respectable Christmas. It's not a raucous, crazy Christmas like mm. you might have had in the Middle Ages. Um, it's a lot of eating and drinking, but it's respectable and it's in your and house. And it's very much it's, it's family. Domestic. It's, That's it's, right. it's domestic and, and family-based. The sort of imagery then, I suppose, that we start to get in films. Uh, how long was it before we got a, a film version of a Christmas Carol. Well, right out. from the beginning. I mean, right mm. from the start of early early cinema, there are like you know two to three minute long versions of mm. of a Christmas Carol. So I mean, there are something like a hundred and forty plus versions. So wow. I'm not you know please you're not going to discuss them all this evening. <laughs> Just a hundred um, of them. That's yeah, all. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm cutting down maybe by half. Um, but yeah, so it starts right in the early right in, at the beginning to silent cinema and moves into, of course, it, it's very handy for silent cinema because then you can throw in the carols and I mean already. Oh, can be put in after the yeah, event, as it were, yeah. or they, 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 the organist or pianist in the cinema can do that. That's yeah. right. You can, and 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 everybody, you know, everybody loves the carols. And it's also like, it's it's got, you know, just like Jal is saying, it's got a particular set of imagery that it that it, you know, each one looks very like the last one because they do look like Christmas cards, and and it's that sort of slightly kitschy. Christmas cardy look where you have to have certain things apart from the ones that you know go absolutely wild you know takes well, Scrooged Scrooge yeah. doesn't really but the Scrooge That's is about the making yeah. of it that comes much yeah. later but these early ones they're, they're sticking very very closely in fact to the, to the story mm-hmm. and to and they're I think they you know a lot of them they've seen the last one and they just want to do it a bit better so you, you get the same one being made fundamentally over and over again I mean there are you know as it becomes more entrenched as the sort of thing everybody watches on television, you you begin to get certain conventions. You have to have a big name star mm. as Scrooge, and he and, and and he has to be English or pretend to be English, and he has to be versatile enough to be able to transform from being a miser to being the good guy by the end. So he's one of the sort of you know you have to have that. You also have to have a winsome child as Tiny Tim, and that's usually you know some little blondie sort of boy who, you know, he's only good. He's an angel living or mm. dead. And then um, you also have to have a sort of really hammy ghost as Marley clanking around <laughs> the place. And those are the sort of three central characters. The women, I have to tell you, they're just doing like they're stuffing yeah. the turkey or the, you know, they're, they're fa- flapping around the place being, you know, they're very much in the domestic However, um, you don't have to have people at all. You only have to have one person <laughs> if you're doing it as, is the Muppet Christmas card, is that your top end? Well, you know, I was I was kind of going around last week. I was saying, I'm, I'm doing this item on Arena and what's yours? Ah, oh, everybody says the Muppet Christmas Carol. Of course, it's 30 years old. Yeah. It's the, it's the 30th and anniversary. And it's in the Lighthouse Cinema. It's in the Lighthouse Cinema as we weeks, speak. Yeah. So um, it's the one that most people think of. So in fact, yeah, having said all of those things, all you have to have is a few Muppets. Yeah, and well, a but little, Michael Caine, you yeah, know, Yeah, Michael Caine. Michael Caine is just fantastic yeah, in this. Yeah. And he, he does a great number. He even sings with the Muppets at yeah. the end of it. He's not got a great voice, but he's game for it. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't need a little winsome child if you've got a little winsome frog. <laughs> <laughs> really do you. you don't need that at all. And isn't it, is it Statler and Waldorf? Or they, they're, they're, the, they're the Marley. Marley and Marley. Yeah, kind yeah, of makes total sense. Let's have a listen to Michael Michael Caine as Scrooge. He's um, talking to Bob Cratchit here, played by Kermit the Frog, uh, and he's saying why, why Christmas is such a good time for moneylenders. Christmas is a very busy time for us, Mr Cratchit. People preparing feasts, giving parties, spending the mortgage money on frivolities. One might say that December is the foreclosure season. Harvest time for the moneylenders. If you please, Mr. Scrooge, it's gotten colder. Yeah. Any bookkeeping staff would like to have an extra shovel full of coal for the fire? We can't do the bookkeeping. Yeah, all of our pens have turned to inksicles. Yeah. Our assets are frozen. How would the bookkeepers like to be suddenly... Unemployed! Keep Keep it. It. This is my island in the sun. Um, I believe you've convinced them once again, Mr. Scrooge. 
Oh, it just gets better every time you hear it. I love that sequence. <laughs> I just love it because they're all suddenly doing the calypso dancing yeah. in their grass skirts. Yes, of course, Michael <laughs> Keane as Scrooge uh, and, and Bob Cratchit played by Kermit the Frog in Muppet Christmas Carol. But interestingly enough, we're obviously we're celebrating a Christmas Carol tonight in both its literary and filmic forms. But interestingly enough in that, Charles, uh, we get the sense of like, yeah, the moneylenders, ha, ha, ha. But Dickens, he, he, he gave such social commentary. Yeah. To how, how much to the fore was that in the writing of the original book? Oh, it was. He was very clear while he was writing it. So he wrote it over a six-week period. He had, had, he had three different things in his mind, except, as well as the money. Or he mm. wanted the money. Yeah. He needed the money. But he had visited a, 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 a tin mine and seen the conditions in a tin mine up in Cornwall. He had, he had visited a ragged school in London and seen the conditions of the children there. And he'd also read a royal commission into ch- childhood employment as well, in which uh, children's uh, employment in mines, uh, working 11 hours mm. a day in cramped working conditions, children working uh, 16 or 17 hours sewing uh, dresses. All these things had a huge impact on him. And he was determined that this book would do something. He wanted, his key audience was actually employers. He wanted mm. employers to change. Um, he wanted them to grant better working conditions and better rights to their employees. Partly because of his genuine fear for what would happen if these things didn't change. He was genuinely fear, fearful of an actual revolution. He was convinced there was going to be a revolution if employers didn't start to, to make concessions to their employees in terms of rights, in terms of wages. So that's really to his to the to the fore when he's writing it. And that's why Tiny Tim becomes a kind of almost like a, a, a representative of these. This is what's going to happen if you don't pay your employees better. Yeah. They'll you, children will be dying. I mean, if you think about Tiny Tim, he's dying because he's uh, the the kinds of food that Bob is able to provide are not sufficient to to help Tim recover from his illness. So the first thing that Scrooge does is buy him this enormous turkey and the indication here is you provide better food and conditions for your employees and their children will be able to survive your job as an employer is to look after not just your employee yeah, but, but also their family and yeah. to consider what's going on there as well so quite a quite a big social conscience really in, involved in what he was doing which is certainly in the in the George C. Scott version of uh, the film that's from 1984 with George C. Scott playing it he is uh, certainly initially there's no there's no um, consideration in his mind at all for his employees, Ruth. No, I mean, <clears throat> I, I think this is probably the one that most people have seen, yeah. the, the George C. Scott one, and it's, it's it's on telly every year. And George C. Scott is really, really good. I mean, he was a very, very prominent um, actor at this stage, you know, and he, you, you, you know, you, you might know him from Doctor Strangelove and he was Patton mm. and Patton. And he's, he's a big man, you know, so he's like, he's like the big um, patriarch in, in, in the film. And he's, Utterly mean at the beginning, as you say, but but the great thing is he's got that ability to transform. And of course, what what also, you know, the story has and the films retain is that he's had a brutal childhood, and so there's a certain sort of you know kind of Freudian mm-hmm. um, element, element going it, yeah. on to it. So he's been brutalized as a child. He was an unhappy child, and he's brought back to see his childhood and back to the country, in fact, mm-hmm. to see his childhood. And so we. It's not. We begin to have some sympathy for him, I think, too, as as the film progresses. He's not just a cut and paste monster, but he's somebody to whom bad things have happened, and who in turn then visits bad things yeah. on, on people. Well, certainly um, at this point in the film, where he's uh, <laughs> Bob Crouch is looking for a day off for Christmas. Uh, no, yeah. Bad <laughs> yeah, what? We'll have we'll have none of that, young man. You'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose, if it's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient, and it's not fair. If I were to hold back half a crown from your pay for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. But you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. Christmas comes but once a year, sir. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. And I suppose you must have it. Be here all the earlier the next morning, Cratchit. Yes, sir, I shall. I certainly shall. Make sure. Yes, sir. And a Merry Christmas to you, Mr. Scrooge. Humbug. Ah! 
<laughs> and he said, George, she's got it. He goes, he goes humbug, ah, as opposed to the yeah, bad no, humbug. Yeah, yeah. He plays around with that, doesn't he? Uh, that's from the 1984 film of A Christmas Carol, and it was David Warner there as Bob Cratchit. It, it, every time, he, I, I think, does it actually say on the front of A Christmas Carol, does it mention a ghost story there, yes. Jonathan? I thought it, does, it did, yeah. yeah. Uh, ghosts are, are important. Uh, in fact, oh, nearly all, so Dickens writes five Christmas stories, of which obviously his Christmas Carol is the most important, and four of them have supernatural interventions. Well, partly he's he's sort of bringing to, to light this association between Christmas and ghosts, mm. because Christmas is a quite a haunted time of the year, partly because it's, it's about memory. You know, when you celebrate Christmas, you think about, first of all, your own Christmases, the childhood Christmases that you've had, so you're kind of haunted by your own past, which in Scrooge's case, is literal. So he goes back and haunts in himself. He sees himself as a, as a young man uh, and as a young boy. Mm-hmm. We're also haunted by, you know, what we've lost, who's dead, who's, who's no longer there, the empty seat at the, at the table. Um, and, of course, in the, the ghost, what the ghost Christmas, Christmas presence tells him at one stage is, you know, he asks, will Tiny Tim survive? And he says, no, I see a, an empty stool with a, a, a crutch yeah. just there at the... At this time next year so you you're get making, this you're sense you're making me yes. well up even <laughs> listening to it <laughs> yeah, so you get this sense of you know, memory the dead yeah. thronging yeah. around at Christmas but as a particular time of the, the year in which we remember our, ourselves and we remember our, our, our those who have passed on so it's it's quite appropriate for, for the, the ghost to intervene yeah because as I was talking about that we did the big outside broadcast from the Abbey and the Weir and you know the fact that there's a kind of ghostly element to mm-hmm. that it kind of sits very sits very it well does, around yes. the Christmas period in, in that respect however let us let us go to it's one of, with the title uh, yeah, I know this is one of my favourite versions of it from 1988 Bill Murray it's kind of you have to set up what's going on in terms oh, of this man. film it's, it's so cleverly done Ruth this this movie is just so mad so first of all you've got to remember that Bill Murray has just made it so big in Ghostbusters yeah and so Ghostbusters there we go here we go indeed <laughs> and so um, the story is it's it's also it's the mad studio executive so he's he's the mad studio executive who is putting on a live broadcast of A Christmas Carol <laughs> And at the same time, his boss thinks that he's lost it. But he is just getting crazier and crazier and crazier as he gets under more and more pressure. And so once, when each time the ghosts then, because he's Scrooge, so he's not only putting on Scrooge, but he is our equivalent of Scrooge, right? And 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 he's miserable to all his employees, and he's got this, he's got a winsome girlfriend, and and who he's he's done wrong to. And, and which echoes the the visit back to the the child, or not the childhood, but the young manhood of of uh, Scrooge in in the other films. That's right. Yeah. So he's he's got the. the He's been he's been made unhappy, but he's absolutely crazed. So each time he sees, there are brilliant sequences. He'd be sitting in a restaurant, right, and he sees the ghost, and so he goes crazy and he throws because the ghost is on fire, and so he throws a bucket of water at the ghost. But actually, what he's throwing a bucket of water at is the waiter, and and the people sitting around the table with him, they don't see the ghost. So you have this brilliant kind yeah. of comic setup yes. where somebody sees something supernatural and nobody else sees it. So he's going. Barking crazy throughout the whole thing. Well, here's the scene where uh, Frank is the the TV executive that played by Frank Bill Cross. Murray. Frank Cross, yeah, <laughs> which is kind of a clever yeah. enough name in itself, isn't it? Beaten up by the kindly ghost of Christmas Present, played by Carol. King. This is probably the most frightening version of Christmas present that there is, because Christmas present is, quite, is normally quite a benign presence. Not in this case. No, Frank. I'm the ghost of Christmas present. I had a funny feeling. Uh, why <laughs> did you do that? Sometimes you have to slap them in the face just to get their attention. Fine. Slap me in the face. But you kicked me in the wall. It's time to begin our journey. Now, close your eyes and think. No. You close your eyes. Oh, no. I'm through. Don't be awesome. Close your eyes. And think of snowflakes and moonbeams and whiskers on kids. No picking. <laughs> of rainbows. Forget me nots. Of misty meadows and sun dappled pools. Oh, look. 
There's Mr. Hedgehog. I wonder where he's going. Perhaps to Harlem. My jaw. Oh, sometimes the truth is painful, Frank. Uh -huh. But it's made your cheeks all rosy and your eyes bright as stars. If you touch me again, I'm gonna rip your goddamn wings off. Okay? Yeah, and he, I mean, the, the, the thing about Bill Murray is he never gets better. No, he's, he's, by the end, he's just as yeah. crazy as he was. At Which the one will you definitely watch over Christmas? Ten seconds. Uh, well, I'm actually going to go back to Scrooge, Brian Desmond Hurst's 1951 one with Alistair Sim. Alistair Sim, yeah, that's a nice one too. And uh, will you read the, the novel again? Do you do that on a regular oh, yeah, basis yeah, around every, in and around the Christmas period? Yeah, have to, have to. And I'll watch the George C. Scott. I, I actually prefer that one. All right, you, you'll be watching the George C. Scott. Um, I will definitely be watching Muppet Christmas. Carl, I'm hoping to watch Scrooge again as well. Those would be the two I'll be going for. That's uh, Jarlis Killeen and Ruth Barton. No bah humbugs. Happy Christmas to you both and enjoy the films and indeed the novel when it comes your way. Spliced is the title of a one-man play performed and staged in a handball alley which aims, quote, to shine a light on the fragility of the sportsman and to begin a conversation about identity and mental health in the GAA. In the play, we are introduced to a young man who eats, sleeps and breathes hurling and has been steeped in the tribal identity of his local Cork club from a very early age. But as he grows and develops, the pressure to perform, to be disciplined and to observe the strictures of the GAA tribe begin to wear him down. The play was written and originally performed by Timmy Creed as part of the Fringe Festival in 2017 and next month, in January 2023, it comes back to Dublin as part of the first Fortnight Festival, a festival aimed at challenging mental health prejudice through artistic and cultural action. Delighted to have Timmy Creed with me in studio this evening who is the writer and performer in the play and his director Gina Moxley. Timmy, I said it, it introduces us to a young man and uh, etc etc <laughs> with his connections with the um, GAA. It basically introduces me to Timmy Creed and Timmy Creed's story. That's exactly what it does, yeah. It's autobiographical story about my, I guess my origin story as I thought of it, uh, coming up through the GAA and the familial community feel of that and who I was becoming unknowns to myself through that tribe and the success of that and then the growing older and starting to see other things and the mm. pressure of it, the seriousness of it growing inside me, kind of switching and continuing my journey as I grew up into the world outside of it. Yeah, and, and that's, I suppose, what the play really looks at is this, the, you know, when you're stuck in the middle of something, what you don't see that's maybe in front of your nose, just around just around the corner. But you were, you were a successful GAA player and a successful GAA player in Cork. Um, <laughs> so, you know... There's, there's plenty of them, there's plenty yeah, of them. Yeah, I know there's plenty of them in Cork. But you were one of the real elite, you were one of the hurlers. Yeah, the team I played on since I was 15, it won every county championship till, it, till we were 21. And we became the potential for the club to become a stronghold in hurling. Mm. And hurling is a big thing in Cork. So to have that potential within a group of young lads is a big thing to hold. It grows your confidence. It grows the strength of the group. They were but gods. Yeah. They were gods. Don't be a bit shy about it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it grow, the sense of, of yourself and the potential of what you can mm. do as a hurler, is that starts to grow. But then the, your yourself outside of that and how it affects you outside of that has an effect yeah. as well. You're saying there, Gina, they were gods. Yeah. It, were they always uh, gods? Uh, well, not to me, because I wasn't really into hurling until I met Timmy and started <laughs> work on this. But... Through working with him, I saw, like, you know, in what regard these people were held. Mm. And it was quite kind of terrifying going back with the show to Bishopstown, which was Timmy's team as a young fella, and presenting a show that could be seen as being critical mm. of the GAA. And um, just seeing all these guys open up to it was extraordinary. They were brilliant because they were saying he's articulated something we feel, but didn't know how to 
say. Mm. Yeah, and, and that's what you do. And you, you articulate both the positive and the negative and the challenges and the good sides and the bad sides. Let's have a listen to a clip um, from, this is taken from that original uh, run back in, in 2017, I'm guessing. And this is where you're, you're giving a sense, you're giving us a sense here of what exactly the GAA family is and what that group of people means to, are meant to you as a young man growing up in Cork. I'm a gay man. Gaelic Athletic Association. Child, boy, man, GAA man. I play for Common Lou Class Gael, Ballyan Aspig or Bishopstown GAA Club. Bishopstown is a suburb of Cork City, population 25,000. It has a hospital, an Aldi, two terrible pubs, a shopping centre, a boil sports, a paddy power, a Costa and a GAA club. The club is the centre of the community. Our social parish, our church, our religion. The club, it never changes. It's always the same. It rewards enthusiasm, self-sacrifice and commitment. We think the same, we like the same, we hate the same. A true GAA man is a lifelong servant. And that's Timmy Creed there performing from his one-man show, Spliced, and that was from a performance back in 2017. The play is coming back, and it's coming back to the Handball Alley in Croke Park, it should Woo-hoo. be said, Woo-hoo. in in, uh, in January of 2023, whatever, but bringing it to your local community and potentially criticising the GAA there. Here you are going to the heart of the GAA and, and putting it on stage there. But that clip that we just heard, Timmy, it really does give a sense... It's the centre of our community. It's a very positive thing. You were, you were keen to get that aspect in, I think, before you started saying, let's have a look at what, it, what, what other sides there are to it. Yeah, because it offers huge, the idea, the idea of community and being part of something and feeling supported by people other than yourself outside of your family. It does that in a way that I don't know are there many other things that do it to mm. the scale because you do somehow feel connected to the people in Donegal as well. And you'll meet them somewhere along your travels and you'll meet another GA man and automatically you have a connection. And that brings something yeah. alive in you like that is unbreakable in some ways. Well, it's funny, you might, you might associate with the man in Donegal. I wonder how many of the other 265 clubs in Cork there seems to be. <laughs> and I, I suppose this is part of the tribal thing. It's almost as if, of course, you can admire and love a club in Donegal. You couldn't be admiring and, and loving one of the other 264 in Cork, could you? It's, it's true, you can't. And, uh, <laughs> you can the, name them, though, you can yeah. name which them, is brilliant. As he does in the play, which is an extraordinary moment. The thing that I think about in the show and I talk about is this idea of distaste and hatred towards another group or another part or another parish. The more that's alive in you, the more you will fight for your own club. And in a mm. way that can bring something to a match, you know, and sometimes it's not as serious and it's taken tongue in cheek, but it builds this kind of hatred to which I think is interesting. Yeah, and, and I suppose the other side of that is if you then were playing on the Cork County team, with one of those people from another club, you would be Corkmen against the rest of the country. So it, it's a kind of, it's a double-edged sword in, in many ways, isn't it? But you do, you do criticise or you do look at the negative aspects of, uh, of within the culture itself. When did those negative aspects begin to creep to the surface for you and what were they? I think the, the seed of the play, it grew out of me starting a life as an actor and feeling like I didn't have the language. Having come from a dynamic and the atmosphere of a GAA club and a GAA team, to be in rooms and to be in places with people who were more versed and had more openness in talking about theatre, art, creativity, and feeling like I was stunted because I had spent so long doing something else. Also moving, moving from the world of the support of my team into a solo, individual world the kind of seed of those two things together, it made me wonder as to why was it the way I was now? And why did I, why was I struggling to communicate or to express myself in this new setting, having come from that? And that, there was an energy in that of me trying to figure out my, figure out why am I the way I am now? Why am I like this with people? And the play is an exploration of those, 
two aspects. I yeah, and Gina, I'm sure, like myself, when I hear Timmy saying that he had struggles and, and found it hard to articulate what he was feeling, what this play does is it really does express a very strong emotion and a very strong set of feelings. Was that a difficult thing to tap into when directing Timmy? Or were they out on, was he wearing the heart um, on, on his sleeve from the outset? It was like any play, anyone writes, Nobody really knows what they're talking about initially and you have to kind of coast around many things. But I think what I was aware of was that Timmy, in talking about his GAA career or background, felt stunted, as he says, and kind of became a hippie and floated Mm. out of that. And I was trying to find a way to help him articulate how he moved from one thing to another and pushed him a bit, I'd say, Hmm. to say things that maybe he didn't want to say or was not clear about yet. We had two thirds of the play written very close to opening the play and the last third was a struggle, really. It was really how to leave it tonally and how to merge the, Hmm. the kind of the drift from the GAA into art and how to marry the The, the ideas. Well, I want to play a a clip that gives us a sense of just how strong and how violent the the voice, there's almost like a voice inside your head that was started to to speak to you from this clip that I'm going to play, uh, which is you're you're kind of bouncing off the the handball alley walls as as you're doing this. So there's huge physical energy in it. But all the time is this idea somewhere in your head that, you know, you're different, you're, you're slightly different from, from everybody else is here. And I, sh- I should warn, there's very strong language in the midst of, of this clip uh, from Splice. Timmy Creed again performing. Get stuck in, get on top of it. We drink the same, we like the same, we are the same. I'm not the same. You're not the same. 21, senior hurler, senior footballer. The rising star, more pressure, no bother. Pressure is for fucking tires. I'm a skinny, spindly fuck, but I am not a sub. I'm lifting weights. I'm on the powders, proteins, tablets. Nutrition, condition. Think big, bigger. These arms, these legs have to get bigger. I'm not fit for this. Yes, you are. Come on. Come on. No pain. No gain. This is the sacrifice. This is the tribe. We are GAA men. We are Ireland. One more year. One more county final. One more medal. Come on. Push it. Push it. I'm a winner. I'm a county champion. That's a clip there from Spliced, a one-man play with Timmy Creed uh, writing and performing in the title role. Timmy's with me in studio this evening and is, as is the director of the play, Gina Moxie. It's not the title role, your name isn't Spliced, your name is Timmy Creed, but it's it's the sole role. That gives a real sense of the sort of tension because at one level, isn't it a good thing that you're pushing yourself to the absolute limits, trying to get the best out of yourself, but somehow that voice was scratching away at you. I'm not the same, I'm not the same. Yeah, and it is it is good to, to, to be able to exercise that level of commitment and obsession or in some ways with something, you know, and that, that gives something mm. back to you. But at the same time, I, I'm interested in and, and curious about what is the knock on effect of that yeah. inside yourself when you push yourself to that limit with this one thing and where is the space for anything else? But where is the What's the other side of that? You know, yeah. what's the dark side of that? Yeah, and, and that's that's what you articulate very well in the play. You, you mentioned about uh, when we when you took it to Bishopstown, then to the local club. Did you was it in the handball alley down there, yes. or was it yeah in the handball alley yeah. in Bishopstown? I mean, a huge moment. I would have thought. Were it you nervous terrifying. about the? Re- I was going to ask you that. How frightened were you, Gina? I was kind of sloping around, hoping nobody'd know who I was. He could take all the flack. <laughs> <laughs> it was extraordinary, really. The reaction was so uh, tender. Is what was really, wasn't it, Tim? Yeah. A load of guys he would have played with, 
Like, I think they were overwhelmed. Yeah, and it's like, it, 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 it proves something to me that there is an openness within those communities, within those clubs for something different, a different kind of voice, a different kind of activity, a different kind of experience that also brings everyone together, that also delivers something that's within the same storyline of the same world, but it's a totally different energy, energy and uh, medium. But That's it's, it's the same thing, but it's in a different medium, you know. So, in other words, within the club, there is space for the individual. You don't have to be some kind of automaton within the, the, the team. And I guess the great player is an individual who is part of a team. Yeah, yeah. But I think to be able to teach that to at a young age, that mm. there is space for individuality and that there is space for people to be able to express themselves fully. But within the confines of a team, you're always kind of adhering yeah. to a certain kind of structure. And also it gets away from a certain toxic masculinity. Don't ask precisely where that question. They're totally tender fellows, you know, that just didn't know how to speak in these terms and were dying to. Do you have any sense that perhaps within uh, women's sport and within, particularly within uh, team sports with women, do you think there's a similar type of... Um, energy or is it, does it express itself differently? I'd hate to speak for it because yeah. I don't know enough. But from what I've seen, it doesn't seem to be. It seems more balanced. Yeah. <laughs> it, I can't speak for it, though. Yeah, but if, yeah, from, from, from your from experience, what see. That's, yeah. that's what you would see. I don't think they're kind of built to hate things as much. Like things have changed even since we began doing this play. Yeah, if you think this was 2017, this is before lockdown. I can't believe that it's not actually five years from we spoke about it yeah. uh, originally, Timmy. But this, you know, lockdown has happened. The pandemic has happened. So much has changed in the intervening period. Has the play changed much or does it still kind of hold up because of the basic premise? Yeah, I think it still holds up. I was worried myself going back to it after mm. the lockdown. Would people be interested in this having seen the kind of desire people had during the lockdown for other things other than the delivery of what was happening, you know. And all we wanted to do was go to a GAA match, be with the club, be be in the clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think this, the, the, the psychology, the struggle, the grasp at articulation of it, people still see that and they've mm. recognised that and they can relate to that. The idea of extreme masculine behaviour is still, it's still there. It still hasn't changed well, it's much. pushed more even. Yeah, people still do extreme things um, and I think there's other ways to develop yeah. and to connect and to understand. Finally, are you, are you back playing at GAA in any way, shape or form? Because you had kind of stopped for a while, hadn't you? I had stopped, yeah. I went back to, after we spoke to you, I went back before I brought it back to Bishopstown. I played a season and it, it brought us the third act of the play. Ah, there you go. Which was that story. <laughs> it was and well I, worth it. I haven't played since. <laughs> I've been working with Ballymon this year as an artist in residence and we'll be working with them next year. I might go back to play a bit of football, but... And then we get the sequel. Get the sequel, <laughs> yeah, 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 You go yeah. back. Uh, thanks very much there to Timmy Creed and Gina Moxie and the play that uh, Timmy and Gina were ta- talking to us about is called Spliced. It will be performed at the brand new, in fact, National Handball and Croke Park Community Centre. That's at Croke Park. Uh, they, those performances in January. Saturday, January the 7th and Sunday, January the 8th. It really is extraordinary to think of that play going into the very heartland of the the GAA in that uh, particular location in Croke Park. You can find out full details of the event on splice.ie and of course it is part of the first fortnight festival and you can find out all about not just this event but other events happening as part of first fortnight on that website which is firstfortnight.ie. Tomorrow night on the programme Adam Clayton and Marguerite Capoc will be telling us about their new TV documentary. It's all about Francis Bacon. I've been watching some of it today. Diaries that shed new light on the artist's early life in Ireland. Very interesting indeed. So Adam Clayton and Marguerite Capoc on that tomorrow night here on Arena. But that is our lot for this evening. Leah Murphy and Amanda Amandine Paso-Divine researched. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Gar Duffy was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGowan.